0: Welcome to this bonus episode of Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, my co-host is Greg Cott. but today we are turning the reins over to our producer, Andrew Gill. It's nice to have you on the air, Mr. Gill.
1: Hello, thanks for having me, guys.
0: So, uh, what do you got for us today?
1: Well, I recently interviewed the directors of a documentary about the singer Karen Dalton. Do you guys know who she is? Are you familiar? I did
0: not know the name even until I started reading about this doc she's fairly obscure but the people who know her like people like Nick Cave and Dylan they they loved her Uh, that second record in my own time I've I've actually been listening to that the last few weeks because I knew this movie was about to come out it's great really great stuff holds up very well Didn't you know?
1: Yeah, it's very strange and haunting. And she, she had this way of being right on the cusp of, like right on the edge of the picture, like with yeah. Dylan in Greenwich Village. And she almost was in The Mamas and the Papas. Mm-hmm. Um, A Zelig like figure. Yeah, but just never quite got through. And never, you know, she only made two albums. Mm. Um, but this documentary um, was interesting. because So I, I got this press release. I'd never heard of her. And they have a picture of her with Dylan in Greenwich Village. And she looks like a spitting image of Angel Olsen. Mm. Like the the short bangs and singing. And um, then I read that Angel Olsen read her diaries for the movie. She does the voice of Karen Dalton. So I was like, I got to watch this and see what's going on here. So uh, it turns out it's a very sad story. It kind of leaves you... Seeing why feminism is very important, mm. <laughs> the challenges that women face and that she faced were just terrible. Good movie to watch. Very sad and sobering, but um, but worth our listeners' time. Yeah, I think so. It's uh, on streaming services. It opened in New York in October, but mm-hmm. it's on streaming services as of last week. So
0: well, we'll be back in a minute with uh, more from the directors of the new film about Karen Dalton. We're back with producer Andrew Gill.
1: Welcome to uh, Sound Opinions, Rich Pete and Robert Yapkowitz, the uh, co-directors of this film on Karen Dalton, In My Own Time. Very um, moving documentary. Um, Welcome to Sound Opinions.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us and for, for watching the film.
1: Yeah, I have to admit, I didn't know Karen Dalton before I I watched the film. Once I watched the movie though, I started hearing her music all around. You know, like on TV shows and, you know, talking with friends who are into music and they're like, oh yeah, Karen Dalton she's she's great.
0: Are you leaving for the country You say the city brings you down Leave the
1: but it sounded like many of the people in the movie didn't think she was like worthy of the film treatment almost like her her daughter is in the movie quite a bit with a lot of very personal stories and it's kind of amazing that you got her to share that such an intimate personal um part of her life in this film but can you talk about like how you had the idea to make a film about her and, and what it was like convincing people that she was worthy of you know, the full-length documentary treatment?
2: Yeah, I think part of what you're picking up on is people's hesitancy to speak with us because other filmmakers had come before us trying to do films about Karen and they had like volunteered their time and done interviews and then nothing ever came of it. And mm. a big part of that was just the, the lack of of footage or audio pieces that these other filmmakers couldn't find and so i think there's a little bit of frustration when it came to just talking about karen they were done telling these stories you know they were just sort of frustrated with that element of it there's also i think people from that time period who were also musicians they all want documentaries made on themselves so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we'd get like long tangents or they're telling stories about their lives and they're like cool well this one's about Karen. So let's come
3: back to Karen and talk
1: about her. (laughs) To recenter things a little bit,
3: right? Yeah. Yeah. I think also like with Karen's daughter and some of her close friends, they were hesitant too, because I feel like it had been such a long time that Karen had been just on the fringe of kind of wider recognition. Uh, Every few years there would be like a reissue and then a couple articles and then it would kind of fade back into the shadows again. And so I think, you know, to some of the people closest to Karen and her daughter, they didn't really think there was an audience in a way or they thought the audience was so limited that maybe it would, it wouldn't be worth the time. Right. Right. So they were, which is understandable.
1: They were uh, protecting their own time investment in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't we start since a lot of our listeners might not know the story of Karen Dalton. um, Let's start at the beginning. I mean, that she, She grew up in Oklahoma, you know, with uh, an authentically folk upbringing kind of, you know, right? Uh, Some of the people that she met later said, you know, she was one of the few authentic folk singers um, of the early 60s because she lived the life, you know. Um, And yeah, it struck me that, you know, she was married at 15, had a kid, and then that marriage ended and married again by, I don't know how old she was with her second marriage, but had a daughter and she was still, you know, early twenties or something or or younger, right? What was was her life in Oklahoma like, um, as far as you gathered in making the film?
3: Karen's childhood was definitely something that was difficult to piece together. We were fortunate enough that we were able to speak with her brother and her cousin who, was pretty helpful with a couple phone calls, but unfortunately passed away before we could interview her. Mm -hmm. So what we could gather is Karen's family was probably like, you know, lower middle class. She grew up in Enid, Oklahoma, which is a small town in the late 30s, early 40s. The family was very conservative. Um, They were very musical, but they were very conservative and they were very involved in the church. They were Southern Baptists and then her grandmother later converted to Methodist. Um, and I think just the time and the place is ha- played a big part into the authenticity that's often attributed to her. Um, you know, she, Oklahoma in the early 40s, that's like the land of Woody Guthrie. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's, that's where people, that's where a lot of these songs that all these young people in greenwich village all the songs they were covering that's where the songs came from Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of those songs were born that on top of the whole dust bowl thing you know she kind of came in at the very tail end of the dust bowl and like really kind of lived through the residual effects of the dust bowl um so i think it's like all those factors play a big part into this authenticity that she kind of took with her for yeah you know it feels
2: like too like she you know she was born like rob said into this um uh conservative family she tried to fit within the box she tried to to, to marry uh young and 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 be like a, a, a housewife figure um which was you know what her parents did and and you know what her peers were doing and she just didn't fit within that box and um she she grew up playing music, um was an abbott record collector, played played at the church, played with her families. like that's what they would do is get together and play music. um one thing we could never figure out is just like that's such a huge move, you know, went to to leave her family behind, divorce her husband and just take off and go to New York City. um and uh, we were always so curious like what what did she? What was like the newspaper article or the radio piece that she heard that that was exciting enough for her to leave her entire family behind and go to New York City to pursue this dream that she had, um, which you know was something we, we ultimately didn't find, but it was, it was just so so exciting because it was it was something so profound that she was willing to do that.
1: Yeah. You never, never figured it out. Right. Never, uh, couldn't couldn't crack that case. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Because I mean, I mean, we, that's really when it comes to life, like, or it's, it's almost like the stuff before that's the prequel, you know? Um, and then she really is birthed when she takes off and moves to New York city. Yeah.
3: Right. That's when the transformation sort of begins from the housewife in Oklahoma to, you know, the, the, the final Karen Dalton, you know what I mean? Yeah. That character. And
1: it's kind of like, she, you know, it's like, all right, I gave this the, the good old college try, you know, I did two years. I I tried, you know, not wearing makeup and, you know, like kind of, maybe she was sinking into a depression or something, but um, she, you know, she tried to live in, in that kind of cage and then uh, just couldn't do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I feel like, you know, her story there is so relatable like even myself like i i dropped out of college i was living in my parents basement and ended up like going to new york city for the first time as an adult and just meeting all of these like artists and being in brooklyn and just being so blown away it's just like oh this is where i have to be like the energy of new york city is still alive and i feel like it's you know something that that both rob and i can relate to is just discovering new york and being so inspired
1: the thing that I feel like sums her up the best to me is the Bob Dylan quote from his uh, book Chronicles where he said she sang like Billie Holiday and play guitar like Jimmy Reed, um, which is just so accurate. Um, and then, you know, for for other listeners uh, in the current day, you know, uh, a lot of Joanna Newsom in there as well. So um, yeah. but yeah, talk about how she arrived in in New
3: York and how she just was rubbing shoulders with all these future stars. Yeah. Um, To go back, one thing we do know about her sort of trip to New York, we do know, though it's not in the movie, we know she went to Colorado for like two weeks. Oh, really? Okay. Before she went to New York. Oh, wow. And then then she ended up traveling with people to New York. But according to her cousin, Patsy, who we spoke with, the end game was always to get to New York. Mm. That when she left, she was going to new york so so she yeah she
1: ends up in colorado again later um so those two places just had a big pull on
3: her i guess
2: yeah absolutely we've talked a lot about uh just karen's timing always being off you know just Mm -hmm. like not always lining up right for her in her life um but there were a couple instances where she was right on i think like the, the her landing on the greenwich village scene was was one of those cases where it was just like the perfect timing and and she just Fit in so well there. It was like her people. She she was, you know, everybody considered she was a little bit older than some of the other people on the scene, and and like people considered her like authentic folk. She had a very original voice. She was could play the guitar, and that was just a, an instance that she fit in very well. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, although people say it was like you know she had a tragic life, I think outside of the times when she was suffering from depression, I think she was like a very charismatic person and people were drawn to her. And that was something that she could take advantage of when she arrived uh, to, to New York.
1: Yeah. I mean that the story could have been much shorter, you know, she could have just shown up in New York and not met anybody and nobody cared. And she went back to Oklahoma or something, you know, like, right. um, Which is the
3: case with a lot of people that went to Greenwich Village at that time. Right. Yeah. It's a common story.
1: Um, So it's kind of amazing, but I mean, and then she she's there for a short period of time. Right. But then there's another, um, you know, another aspect of being a woman in this time, like kind of gives her it's not a setback, I guess, but it like complicates her life in a way that these male musicians didn't really have to worry about um, when she misses her daughter and just goes back and and stages a like a kidnapping essentially right
3: yeah i mean she essentially goes back and tells her former husband that she wants to reconcile and moves back in with him and then puts her daughter in the car and drives to new york but the way we kind of wanted to frame that story and like the like i think the way you said it is is pretty spot on it's like she really just wanted to be with her daughter Mm -hmm. you know it's just and like even her daughter says she doesn't it never like it never felt like a kidnapping. She's like, they were never like chased by police and she was a kid and she was just going with her mom. Yeah. But it's, but it's also that other thing where like if Karen wants to do something, she's just going to do it.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, at this point, there's a lot of people in the film that emphasize that she was very confident in her abilities, you know, and she, she knew that she was good and, and like I think Peter Stample, um, from the Holy Motor Rounders says, uh, you know, she just thought that her abilities were so self-evident that uh, anybody with a brain should be able to see that she's great. You know, <laughs> yeah, and she did make a big impression, right, in Greenwich Village. It sounds like uh, there was one person who said she hit the scene harder than Dylan did back then.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, she she immediately, I think, really impressed some of the most influential people on that scene
1: from that period she was you know at the right place at the right time as you said uh rich um is there anything you attribute her to uh, is there anything you attribute to the reason she didn't make a record at that time or um end up you know getting swept up in that wave of of folk that was breaking through
3: i think it goes back to it kind of being a male dominated scene and like what the the people who were releasing records were looking for. Um, If you were a female singer at that time, you had to have a certain image and kind of fit into a certain box. You had to be more like a Joan Baez or a Mary Travers, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Or even, you know, there were other slightly more eccentric artists, but they weren't really as raw as Karen was like Hedy West, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, but even that like she has a pretty um her voice is very easy on the ears, Hetty West, and it's not there's nothing outside unconventional about what she's doing or the way she's doing it.
1: Because there's even a, a moment where she almost is in the Mamas and the Papas, right? She's like in the Essentially the free in like a roundabout way. To that, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. In a roundabout way. But then you like kind of listen to that band, even if you listen to it's the journeyman was the predecessor to the mamas and the papas um with John Phillips and slowly the other members filtered in um and but if you listen to that band the journeyman and and think about Karen fitting in there somewhere it just doesn't it seems impossible Mm -hmm. in a way
2: I don't know it'd be cool to hear if they could have made something work I bet it would be like a pretty exciting band if if they were able to to meld together and make something work
1: yeah, I bet the dudes would have had to have much different attitudes, you know, to be able absolutely. to like work with someone as, you know, confident and, you know, take no BS as Karen. You know, it seemed like she was not going to suffer fools um, or do what she's told, really. Um, she wanted to be an
3: equal partner, right? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It almost feels like Karen was surrounded by a bunch of men who wanted to tell her what to do and they essentially thought she was insane for wanting to have an opinion on on her own career and her own image yeah it just seems wild when you think of it that way
1: and it seems interesting you know watching the film we're talking about feminism here but we're three dudes you know talking about feminism. i know i know i know, I know. <laughs> like, yeah. did you seek counsel from women or <laughs> did you think about oh yeah the, yeah. the position uh, of being uh, a guy making this movie um yes yeah, and how did you think how did you work through your thoughts on that
2: well we always wanted to make sure karen had a voice and you know we are talking about like feminism and her life as a mother. So we made sure to have producers and collaborators that are females. And um, we we have a lot of close collaborators uh, on this project that we're we're constantly watching and giving notes. We did screenings for big groups of friends and and questionnaires and Q and A's. And this is our first time ever making a feature film as directors. So it was a lot of trial there for us in general. We didn't want Karen to be a tragic figure or people to constantly feel bad for her um, because she was like charismatic and a powerful person. So we, we hope that that comes across in the film as well.
1: Well, yeah, and, totally. and the other um, female voice that you hear probably the most is Angel Olsen reading um, Karen's journals and poetry. Um, how did you come to that idea and how did you approach Angel to, uh, to get involved?
2: It took a while. We were like, again, like a lot of trial and error. We knew we wanted to give Karen a voice but she's dead. So that's difficult. And, you know, we were, um, we found those Bob fast tapes. So we were very excited to incorporate those because those are the few times in the film where you're able to actually just hear her speaking, not singing, but knew we always wanted to incorporate the journals. Somehow we tried a, quite a few different ways. And then ultimately when Vin vendors came on as an EP on the film, he gave us a suggestion that was like something that was always in our brains, it just took Vin Bender saying it to be like, of course, that's what we have to do. Um, and you know, like, let's bring on somebody to to read Karen's journals and Angel, we knew was a fan of Karen's and just had such a unique voice. And, and we asked her and she, she signed on and was perfect. We are so happy that she yeah. came on to work <clears throat> with us.
3: One thing, just going back to you know Karen being a female and us sort sure, of navigating yeah. that, we just tried not to judge Karen mm-hmm. in any way like the way we sort of portrayed you know the, some of the darker sides of her personality and things she struggled with we just never wanted to judge her for any of her decisions mm-hmm. and I, and and hopefully that also comes across in the film
1: so to pick up the timeline again she leaves new york um, and i i'm not sure exactly why she left new york did you, did you guys get a good reason why or just wanted to head out to colorado or
3: a combination of probably you know living in poverty, no money, mm-hmm. no real resources. Like you don't, you can be one of the most popular musicians on the scene if you're not, you know, Bob Dylan, 1964 famous, you're not making a lot of money yeah. playing basket houses where they take donations from the crowd. You know, you're making a couple bucks. Richard Tucker, her former husband said, you know, that it was basically like, okay, we decide if we can pay for a cab home or eat a slice of pizza. It <laughs> was what we did with our money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Abby
2: talks so, about just living in these big houses with no heat. The toilet doesn't work. They have to go to the gas station across the street. Like I, I yeah. think that, you know, her being a mother there too, she was just like, this isn't where I want to live. She liked Colorado. She she loved being in nature. Karen was such a rambler. It was like, we, we did like a few versions of the film where we were trying to follow the chronology exact and like where she was. And then we someone would tell us a story and like, oh, in 1964, I was hanging out with uh, Karen in L.A. We were roommates. And then someone else was like, oh, yeah, in 64, Karen and I lived in Boston together. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're watching so, yeah. So we just had to ditch that because it felt like we were making things up at some point um, and, and just restructure the film.
3: We do lump things in, like in our little Colorado segment of the film. You know, it's kind of a mixed bag of some People who knew her throughout her time in Colorado and stuff like that, but it works mostly chron- chronologically. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of, you know, the nature of organizing the events of the life of someone who it's- lived such a fragmented life.
2: Karen, right? It was also a fun time to explore. Like Rob and I haven't grown up as adults in a time when there's like internet and social media. Just the fact like Karen could disappear and just like be in Colorado and her friends wouldn't know where she was or how to contact her and, and just like an exciting time to live that's pretty different from now.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, Karen grew up in the
3: country. She grew up riding horses um, as her daughter says, hanging out at the rodeo grounds as a teenager. So Colorado was a natural transition. That's like, there's two sort of con- contrasting elements that play into each other in Karen's life. It's these two elements of her personality, which is this confidence and this strength, and then this sort of more vulnerable, fragile side. And and I think that's sort of reflected in the landscapes too, like the geographic locations where it's like New York City. It's like her New York City side versus her Colorado side of her personality, constantly at odds with each other.
1: That's very insightful. I I hadn't thought about that, but that really does kind of encompass a lot about from what I gathered about Karen from the film, like there are those two, it's like there's two people going, you know, and.
3: Yeah, uh, exactly, and she's constantly, they're constantly battling mm -hmm. those two aspects of her personality and her life or battling with each other. And that's a big part of the movie is like how those, I guess we kind of try to trace her from her early days and see how these sort of aspects of her personality came to be through certain stories and moments, and then sort of how these contrasting elements contributed to her work. You know I think that's also her music is raw but intimate she's delivers every line with confidence but there's a, a looseness to it and sort of a, a, an element of it that feels very casual so I think it's kind of all revolves around those those elements of her personality really yeah absolutely when I first came
0: We'll be back in just a minute with more from Robert Yapkowitz and Richard Pete on Karen Dalton. We're back with producer Andrew Gill.
1: In Colorado though, she's hanging out with Tim Harden a lot and that's where it says she, she got into harder drugs for the first time, right?
3: Around the time in Colorado, they think Tim had come out from New York City. By the time Tim got out there, he had already released his first record. So he had things like Reason to Believe, which were, for him, mild hits. He had some success. He had already started using heroin at that time, and he went to, New- to Colorado, moved in right up the street from Karen and Richard uh, to sort of kick heroin and just take some time away. He lived a pretty fast life himself. Um, And there's some suspicion that, you know, he was on methadone there. And then that's kind of around the time in Colorado is when methadone and sort of speed started entering the picture in, in Karen's life and sort of circle of friends as well. It didn't escalate, you know, it escalated much. It became much worse later in life, obviously, but um, that's kind of the origins of it. And that was more of an experimentation thing. I don't think it really became this con- this thing that controlled her until later.
2: Yeah,
1: it seemed like it was kind of a character in the wings, just sort of hanging around a little bit. Um, and then she ends up back in New York.
3: She goes to New York to record the first album around 68, we think, end of 68 or so that's where she makes the record with Capitol records produced by nick venet who before he had he had produced fred neil's records but and then had done like the beach boys early mm-hmm. records mm-hmm. and some sort of like like an old school record guy for sure if
2: I should
0: leave you.
3: She had been playing some of those songs for five six years you know a lot of those songs were her set or part of her set live Mm -hmm. Um, and she demoed and rehearsed for that record as well there's has been some speculation in the past that she was tricked into recording which is a lovely story but (laughs) uh from what her the guitarist Dan Hankin who recorded on that album and played with Karen for many years told us was that it was pretty planned out. And we've heard all the demos from, you know, she did a studio demo at Capitol records with her and her guitar and two sets of demos at home for it. All mostly all the same songs. Yeah. So she was prepared and, and, and ready to record those songs.
1: It doesn't get a lot of attention. It seems right. The, the village voice had that great um, little write up. But it was really not not a full, you know, Village Voice critics pick. It was just sort of a, what's wrong with you guys? It's been weeks and no one's <laughs> talking <laughs> yeah, about it. Yeah, that's this, exactly right?
3: what the, the article says. Yeah. It's like, hey, uh, this has been out for a while and no one's talking about it. Yeah. What's up? With those types of albums, it's kind of like when you hear people talk about Dylan's first record. No one believed it would do much. But it was cheap to record and the producer wanted to do it and i think it was the same thing with karen's first record uh nick finney really loved her music and really wanted to record her probably a small group of musicians didn't cost a lot of money and they likely didn't put much money into uh advertising
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know karen played only shows in new york basically surrounding it she may have done one or two in la
1: mm-hmm.
3: a couple of months later but she didn't do a tour to support the album or anything like that. So it's hard. And it's also, like you said, like almost the most Karen Dalton record of her two records, which means it's generally pretty laid back Mm, as far mm -hmm. as the pacing goes which also is tough for radio tunes at that time.
1: Yeah. I I liked how you did in the film, you you start showing some Woodstock footage, you know, (laughs) just to set the scene of what 1969 was kind of about in the music world. um, And how Karen had kind of like taken too long to like really strike while the iron was hot on that folk um, explosion. And then, of course, Michael Lang comes into the scene. (laughs) The uh, impresario behind Woodstock, who is kind of unfairly given uh, control of a record label. (laughs) He signs Billy Joel first, of course, as you do. Yeah, right. (laughs) The third signing is Karen Dalton.
3: When you think about that time period, too, it's like almost just right. I mean, you have bands like the band who... A little more rock and roll for sure, but aren't aren't doing something so far off. And then not long after that album comes out, you really get the whole California, like Jackson Brown thing starts to happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But still, Karen's not quite that. She's just not.
1: The clips you found for her second album, which Michael Lang released um, in 1971 called In My Own Time. It seems like she's in the middle of something that's happening that doesn't really seem like what her artistic vision was. And I don't know how much she was being like swept up by people telling her how it should be in the studio or if that was where she was wanting to go or if she just was releasing control or something.
3: I think she was sort of felt it was a good opportunity. And she, I think Karen gave it a go. Mm -hmm. Like she kind of was like, realized that, you know she might have to try a little bit here and Michael Lang and Harvey Brooks put together the band. Karen liked the band. She liked playing with the band. She had done it in the late 60s for a little while. But it's definitely this type of thing where in those performances especially, you know, you can see there's a level of discomfort just being in front of a band. Mm -hmm. Like, when you see her in the black and white footage of her in the village with her guitar, in a smaller space, she seems so much more comfortable. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And when she's standing up there with a microphone in front of her, she just has her eyes closed and she doesn't seem really all that involved at all Mm -hmm. with anything, not even really with the musicians at certain points. Right, right. That was the most involved she ever really got in the industry, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and she was kind of dropped in the middle of the machine a bit and kind of just start hit, tried to hit the ground running, I think. Yeah.
1: And I mean, that was the year after Woodstock the film made Michael Lang his money back. Right. <laughs> so
3: yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> um, and so he must've been on top of the world at that point.
3: She got some money for the album. Like it was probably more money than Karen had ever had in her entire life up until that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. I I don't even know what the number is, but I'm sure it was you know a, several thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, and she was up in Woodstock. She was recording at a brand new studio that Bob Dylan's manager just opened, Albert Grossman Studio. Mm. Uh, she was hanging with the band. She was hanging with Tim Harden, who was living in a huge mansion, like the, uh, I think it was the mansion of the Heinz ketchup, oh wow. heiress or something <laughs> like that. You know, like the the Heinz ketchup fortune. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in her mind, she was kind of like on top of the world a little bit, like she had her children with her. She was, yeah, she was, I think she was feeling good early on in Woodstock and, and, uh, you know, then I think slowly, but surely, uh, things changed for sure. Uh,
1: It's openings for, of all people, Santana, um, that, uh, yeah. Could, could you imagine a scenario where that went well? I
3: can't. <laughs> uh, no, it's difficult, yeah. but like, you know, Rich said when we were talking to someone else about this, that it's kind of like, if you know, Mike Lang was trying to do an admirable thing there. Mm-hmm. And I think he really did love her music and like he, he loved Tim Harden's music. He loved Richie Havens. He was really into that kind of those people that came off that scene, yeah. the Greenwich village scene um and you know it is wild because santana was such an energetic band it was like the polar opposite of karen but if it had went well and karen shot karen to superstardom everyone would be like mike lang's a genius right yeah you know yeah, it's true. it's just kind of he tried it didn't work it, it the, the odds were stacked against them for sure yeah. uh
1: it reminds me of like um there's that story about Jimi hendrix opening for the monkeys <laughs> you know like that's a yeah exactly mismatch as well um, let's see. I, I think, uh, Robert, I think you're frozen up. Am I doing okay? Oh um, yeah. I'm frozen okay. again. All right. can I can hear, hear you though, fine right? though. That's, that's All cool. Right. I just want to make sure we're not going to drop off or <laughs> lose, lose connection.
2: Yeah, I just have to,
1: um, well, let's see after, so yeah, it's not long after this record and that Santana tour that most of her friends say they saw her for the last time it seems you know like early 70s right um peter Stample tells these these stories about karen being there with the rounders recording and just uh you know just shooting up and uh it seems seems at that point the drugs gonna step onto the main stage from the wings a little bit
3: yeah they were wild i mean their period together that you're referring to is like mid early to mid 70s really kind of picked up in the mid 70s like those late rounders albums and they were wild at that time i mean they were all just off the rails yeah, it everybody it wasn't just
2: karen Like they were yeah like of all, course not, not that whole group karen, of
3: people yeah. there were like 10 people in the holy modal rounders at that time you know <laughs> right. and,
2: and there and
3: all their significant others and partners and pals they had like a gang of like 20 people 25 people that they were just you know staying up for days and playing music. Yeah.
1: When did Karen uh, lose touch with most of these music friends and like what precipitated that?
3: I think the early 70s, she kind of separated herself from certain people on the scene. She still maintained, I know, a bit of a relationship with Harvey Brooks until about 1975. When she moved off into the rounders scene, because the rounders had always kind of separated themselves. It was like the holy modal rounders and like the fugs. And they were like the weirdos Mm -hmm. in the early days. And they were like very involved in the scene, but also had their own sort of little avenue, their own little back alley on that scene Mm -hmm. where they all hung out. So in the middle seventies, when Karen started getting in more than the rounders, she sort of separated herself more from the mainstream music scene and the mainstream like the music culture and industry and all of that. And then by the end of the seventies, I think she was pretty much out of touch with most of her friends from the industry in the scene. It all happened in the 70s basically. After the yeah. second album is slowly but surely things she just sort of separated herself from that world altogether. Yeah. And then we just play at dive bars.
1: Right, okay.
2: There's a small scene up in Woodstock too, like her and Peter Walker that she would like play little shows up there, but or are just kind of like together. They'd kind of Play. and she was writing a lot of poetry and, and keeping her journals and eventually like sold her guitars but yeah it seemed like a, a pretty quiet life up in woodstock there the last days out her son lee ended up mm-hmm. living with her for a little bit up there
1: okay that, that yeah was, he was from her first marriage that when she was 15 yeah. yeah
3: she maintained contact with certain people i know she was in touch with tim harden until he died mm-hmm. which i think was 1980 or 1979 1980 i believe uh she mm-hmm. was very sporadically in touch with Fred Neal still. And then
1: eventually, sadly, uh, she contracted AIDS. Did you have to figure that out through, you know,
3: investigating or was it? It was kind of known that she contracted AIDS. Some people, some of her friends weren't totally aware of it. Her, some people had heard throat cancer, cancer, but it was Mm AIDS-related. You know, even though she lived a quiet life, Later in life, the, both that Woodstock scene and her friends in New York, obviously, they were just still yeah. involved in drugs and stuff like that. Yeah. Even at Woodstock in the 80s, they were staying up all night hanging out. Mm, mm-hmm. Still with Peter. Peter will even talk about it sometimes. They had a small crew up there. Yeah.
1: Then she dies in 93, is that right? Yeah, yeah.
3: 1993 is when she passed yeah. away. Mm-hmm.
1: And then how long was it until people started reappraising her music and like bringing it back to... Uh, the the front of people's consciousness. Um.
2: The reason we like started the documentary is that it, her peers were on the jukebox at this bar we were at in Brooklyn and mm. we were just bummed that Karen wasn't. And that mm. was like six years ago. I, I feel like just within like the past like six years or so you start hearing Karen like at restaurants. Rob and I were just on a shoot in California and Karen was playing in the hotel lobby mm. Um
3: <laughs> in monterey california it wow. wasn't even la wow. it was like monterey <laughs> yeah
1: yeah i heard her on that show the pursuit of love
3: something on your mind shows up a lot on these netflix series too i've noticed it in oh yeah. showing up in like f- five or six shows
1: what uh do you take away from karen dalton's life and music and what do you hope viewers of the film take away
2: There's a lot of misinformation about her out in the world. And this is an opportunity for existing fans to get a glimpse into her life and hear her journals, um, see new footage. And then for people that have never heard of Karen, the goal is to to create some new fans and and hopefully for somebody to get excited about her her music and, and feel like they're discovering somebody new in their life.
3: I mean, you know, also it's like worth saying, you know, this type of music and music in general is just a part of our history as a culture. And Karen has a place in that history for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, She's got, you know, one foot in the past and sort of these traditional values. And then she had one foot in the future. She's almost kind of in a way, bridged the gap between this sort of traditional music and sort of slightly more unconventional music, almost in the same way the holy modal rounders did. Mm -hmm. She was just a little more subtle. Mm -hmm in the way she did it. Um, but you know, she's like a good bridge between folk and these new sort of indie folk artists and stuff like that. Yeah. The takeaway from the way she navigated her career is also a good example of, for the way that modern musicians have done it. Mm-hmm. A lot of modern musicians prefer to record on their own terms and tour on their own terms and have the luxury of being able to do that when, of course, Karen at that time did not. If only Karen had the internet.
1: Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. exactly. The democratization of the music industry would have helped her a lot, right? Are
0: you leaving for the country? You say the city brings you down.
1: Thank you, uh, Rich and Robert, for uh, making this film and for talking with us on Sound Opinions, uh, being generous with your time.
3: Thank you for
2: having us. It yeah, a pleasure. thanks, Andrew. very nice talking to you. Yeah, thanks. we appreciate it. Yeah.
0: Wow, illuminating conversation about the underappreciated Karen Dalton and the new film about her. That's it for this bonus episode. If you've got thoughts on this episode, start a conversation in our Facebook group or leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer Sol Delgadillo, and our intern Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. Thanks for listening.